The ink was barely dry on my application to the department when I was called in the lieutenant's office. He said, Steve, I got a complaint on you. A kid called in and said you pulled him over at the gas station and called him a little bastard. Yes, sir, is all I said. Yes to stopping the kid or yes to calling him a little bastard? The lieutenant said, looking confused. Both, I replied. The LT just stood there and stared at me. Finally, he sputtered. You're not supposed to tell me that. Why, I said. Now it was my turn to be confused. Well, don't do it again, and next time, don't tell me if you did, he finished. And that was my first internal affairs investigation. It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. Police reform has been all over the news lately. From defund the police to eight can't wait, we've seen the media and the public push police reform. Now, while many of the issues brought up skirt the area of internal affairs, nobody is discussing what happens with those bad officers once they've been identified. This episode will give you an inside look into the internal affairs investigation process with guest Lou Ritter. Lou was a member of the Los Angeles Police Department from 1961 to 1981. During that tenure, he had 22 different assignments and rose through the ranks to retire as deputy chief of police. About 70% of his time was spent in uniformed operations, while the bulk of the remainder was in internal affairs, use of force review, training, and personnel administration. So having him on to discuss reform is a no-brainer. He is a sought-after expert, having been published throughout his professional career. Now, I've listed many of his works in the show notes, most of which are focused on handling citizens' complaints of misconduct and conducting administrative investigations, managing the internal affairs functions, and creating reasonable and defensible discipline. As we get into the topic at hand, the truth is police being called to reform isn't new. Yet so much of what we're experiencing today feels that way. And as we get into our history section, Lou shares what may be different today than in the past. Now, pay close attention to what he shares around police culture and how police are reacting today in light of the George Floyd incident. I'm one year shy of being involved in law enforcement for 60 years now. And so I remember the reforms back after the urban riots in the late 60s. And I was a street cop in L.A. then. And, you know, the reports that came out were pretty damning. And there were some good programs identified through the years. Every time we've had one of these incidents, it used to be every 25 or 30 years. This last one, it was only six years, six years from Ferguson. Then we had the George Floyd incident. Each one of those always looks at one issue, which is citizen grievances that we set up roadblocks and undo hindrances in the way of a citizen filing a complaint when they think they've been treated poorly by the police. Ever since then, we're still not responding with the procedures that were recommended back in 1968. Not all departments, but enough that it concerns me. Why do you think that is? Why do you think departments put up those roadblocks from people making complaints or talking to us about what's going on and what the issues they're having with the officers? I think a lot of it is just the police culture. We resist anybody who might say that one of our officers did something wrong. And you still have officers that even when now it's on videotape, they're hesitant to say, no, I think the officer did something wrong. I think George Floyd was an interesting case because we probably had more people, active law enforcement people, 
come out and say, no, what he did was wrong. That's rare. I mean, go back to Rodney King. Look at the conflicts we had there. Some said, well, maybe a couple of the strikes were okay, but after that, I mean, we are reluctant to criticize ourselves, and we're reluctant to do that introspection to say, maybe we're not doing things properly. Maybe there is another way. Let's try some other ways. Even those things that we did try back in the 70s and, uh, and then in, into the 90s, they quickly fade away. Because in law enforcement, what I find is if you don't have an advocate for a change in the way we've done things through the years, if that advocate leaves the agency, that program dies. We go back to doing the way we've done things for years and years, mainly because we're comfortable. For the most part, we are insulated. A lot of reasons, uh, even if in civil litigation there's a large settlement or a jury verdict, you still have cops say, well, I think it was wrong. They don't understand law enforcement. And besides that, you know, it's no sweat off me. It didn't come out of my pocket. The city will pay for it. And unfortunately, they have. In my career, I've experienced and seen all these programs impacted when the people who start them leave. And the reality is those programs fade out and die. Now, it could be the case for many reasons, but one thing is true. Cops hate two things. One, they hate the status quo. And two, they hate change. So often nothing gets done and programs will quickly die on the vine. We are in a time where we're being called to change and a time where we have to. As Lou talks about George Floyd, I reflect on what the media and fellow law enforcement have been sharing and saying about the actions Officer Siobhan took. Regardless of why officers get defensive, it doesn't change the fact that in this case, the officer did use inappropriate force. And there are other factors in play here. With a rookie officer on site, Officer Siobhan was a field training officer, and he was training and leading a recruit officer fresh out of the academy. He was supposed to be the one in charge. What's Lou's reaction to the issues involved here? Here's our discussion around the infamous and heartbreaking incident. I think I'm caught in between two positions. Uh, what, what the officer did there was wrong. And then I look around at some of the others. You know, they, they've charged the one officer. I think it was his third day on the road. So he's just out of the academy. And they charge him with not intervening criminally. Now, I grant you, that was his field training officer. Yeah, so he should have been with his field training officer that should have been the one taking those steps and making those decisions, right? And he was the one with his knee in on Floyd's neck. Now, the problem is, you tell me, have we trained an officer well enough to step in third day on the job and tell his partner, you shouldn't do that. That's not what they teach me at the academy. Think of all the pressures that go through that young officer. I mean, even if you're a seasoned officer, think about all the pressures that an agency puts on an officer who comes forward. And we see that now. We see that in the whistleblowers. What usually happens? The greatest tool that agencies use to punish whistleblowers unfortunately, is internal affairs. Dredge up bullshit complaints, 
old things. We try to load them up with complaints to tarnish a whistleblower rather than look at what he or she is saying in a reasonable way and say, have we treated that person poorly? I mean, if we don't treat our own officers well, how can we expect officers to treat citizens well? I want to restate what Lou just said. If we don't treat our own officers well, how can we expect officers to treat citizens well? That's an excellent and critical point. When it comes to police reform, it seems like one of the big issues is the notion of the officer's duty to report another officer. I asked Lou, with his experience in internal affairs investigations, how many of those complaints typically come from in-house or within the department? When it dealt with misconduct, maybe involving a citizen, very few. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One, it's the whole blue wall, blue shield, whatever you want to call it, code of silence. Uh, If an officer comes forward, uh, they're considered a rat, a snitch. And I think that still exists in law enforcement when it's a citizen. And also, they always feel like, well, I've got your back and you're not going to tattle on me if I do something wrong. We've seen that even with body-worn cameras, even though it's captured on video. A lot of officers still say, well, I didn't see that, or I wasn't in a position to see that. Uh, So we see very few officers coming forward. Now, if you want to go back to Rodney King, the feds really were thinking seriously about bringing up some of those 17 officers that were standing around watching Rodney King get whomped out there, but they didn't. You still rarely ever see the feds gumming in or even a prosecutor and charging officers for failing to intervene. It has not developed, and I don't know if it will. Now, the other side, internally, I think we see more officers today willing to come forward if they see misconduct within the station more than we ever have. Talking about things like uh, uh, falsifying payrolls. Or or, uh, theft from a property room or sexual harassment or racial discrimination within our ranks. Seeing more that will come forward there. Now, even in some of those cases, we see that A lot of people have won big verdicts because they simply supported another officer who had a legitimate sexual harassment or racial discrimination claim. They simply supported the person, came forward, gave testimony that supported that person, and they, as a consequence, faced retaliation from within the agency, sometimes by internal affairs as well. There's still that pressure, but I think we're seeing more and more of that today. One of the complaints I've had throughout my career is that oftentimes the patrol officers are looked at as furniture that can be replaced like a desk or a chair, as opposed to people that really have something valuable to offer the organization. When leaders don't value their people and treat them poorly, the outcomes are bound to suffer. Lou shares his take on the administrative benefits an agency can gain from the individual officer. You know, I was surprised some of these hasty decisions, like the Minneapolis case, they have a union contract. They can't immediately fire that officer, and they didn't follow their own contract. Now, 
a lot of people are down on police unions. And I won't even get in whether that's reasonable or not. What I will say is that police unions try to do the best job for their officers, even the ones they don't like themselves because they have to keep representing them. But they say, you can't be abusive, management. And if you are, we're going to challenge you. And I think that's reasonable. They've been making quite a few inroads into the whole internal affairs disciplinary process. But I'll be honest with you, looking, and I'm not a union guy, never have been, but looking at what they put in place, none of the union contracts, with few rare exceptions, none of them inhibit us in management from doing the job properly. They simply want us to treat the employees reasonably and fairly and within certain structured guidelines for due process. There's nothing wrong with that. But what you find is too many police administrators get their nose out of joint when some officer might challenge their authority. And the other thing, a lot of police chiefs and sheriffs are reluctant to address internal problems or corruption because they think there'll be a blowback on them rather than the reverse. If they're the ones that ferret it out, they can say, I'm creating a culture within this department that I believe is warranted so that we can serve our community. Most of them, though, circle the wagons and say, oh, they're out to get us again. In my last three years in the department, as captain of administration, I was responsible for the internal affairs, and I've had so many arguments with the bosses about how we should actually be handling poor performance and malfeasance by the officer. My stance was to show how we were taking proactive steps to clean this up, yet the higher-ups always wanted to hide the misbehavior. Instead, they want to come up with deals with the officers so people would leave and nobody would talk about this. And we need to stop hiring cops from other places that aren't any good. And as it turns out, I'm not alone in wanting to address this challenge. That's very common. And, you know, that's the whole problem. As you know, we call them gypsy cops. They're one step away from being fired, and they move from department to department to department. In law enforcement, we've been saying we need a database to protect us so that we can go to this database and find out the person who's trying to get a job with us, have they been fired or have they left one step ahead of being fired? That's been on people's plate. The IACP has looked at it. IASLIT, which is the organization for training and post groups, have looked at it. But you know what? We haven't enacted it. I'll be honest with you. I don't see how hard that is. If everybody were to simply be required, not all states even require you to notify them if someone is leaving because they're under threat of termination. Some states do. Uh, some states, you have to sign an affidavit to say this person, you know, is leaving, was under the threat of being terminated. He's not welcome back in our agency. But a lot of states don't do that. And then there's some administrators and some sheriffs and chiefs that lie because they don't want to be put in a position. They're thought of, well, yeah, but the officer could come back. 
and the officer could sue me for defamation. However, Steve, I'll be honest with you, some departments, even knowing a person's been fired for misconduct, still hires them because they're so shorthanded. They want to get that warm butt in the seat in the car, and that's more important to them than maybe a guy continuing to engage in misconduct in their agency. We see that repeatedly over and over, usually with smaller agencies, you know, who are just want to get someone who's already certified so they don't have to train that officer and they can immediately put them out in a car in the community. So most of the problems we're having, I'll be honest with, are our own making, even with the unions. You know, we agree to the union contract. Problem is, a lot of times the chief or sheriff isn't even on the bargaining team. And so the bean counters who are on the bargaining team look to how can I save money, maybe not give, you know, 1% raise. And okay, I'll let them have something in this area of discipline, which I don't care about because it doesn't cost me money at the front end. Costs us money at the back end, but not the front end. As we look ahead and start to talk about ways to change within our departments, some agencies have started requiring a college education before making the hire. So I asked Lou, would having a degree impact a police officer's ability to do a good job, or is life experience more valuable? Most departments, we were on that kick. Back in the 70s, we were professionalized law enforcement. Everybody's going to have a college degree, and most of the agencies have abandoned that. I would say most of the people we're getting in have may have some college, maybe not a degree. I go back to, I forgot who the educator was or the police philosopher. He said, you know, education won't make a good cop, but a good cop can be made better with an education, which is interesting because we've never proven that a college-educated person is going to be a better cop than one who maybe came up in a disadvantaged community, maybe had some military experience, maybe tried some other jobs and didn't like them or may have failed at them, but at least had life experience. I kind of would rather have that person than someone who came from suburbia, went to a university, spent four years, maybe got a master's degree, never worked a second job, and now this is the first job they've ever had. I'd rather have the other person personally. From my field training background, one of the things that we saw specifically in the you know 80s and, and early 90s, those age requirements to be a police officer, you know, not 21, but 23, 24, 25 for a lot of agencies, because of that very issue, the 21-year-old kids with no life experiences were coming in and really having maturity issues and problems in training. But these older, more mature uh, individuals that were getting hired with those life experiences were really settling in well, not having maturity issues and turning out to be some fantastic cops, but then we couldn't find them anymore. And we had to go back to those younger hires, which is where I think our focus, a lot of our hires right now in law enforcement are 21-year-old kids with very little life experience. And, you know, in some states, they're 18. We've all had kids who are 18. I'm thinking, mm, I don't think any of them should <laughs> ought to be cops. <laughs> right. You know, in some respects, and when we look at not all communities, certainly not 
the high crime communities, but in the vast majority of communities that have those police departments, 25 or fewer officers, we'd be better off hiring retirees to be a police officer, you know, a 40 or 50 year old person, because they're used to talking to people. They're used to doing mundane things. They're happy having a job. They're willing to do the service type of demands that that small agency requires. And, you know, they don't get in that many fights in some of these agencies because being a little older, they know they aren't going to win all the fights, so they are more apt to talk to people. You and I, you know, we've been out there in the field, and we know that's a heck of a lot easier spending the time to talk to someone to get them into jail than to try to fight them. Some of the young people, they rush so quickly to take action rather than stand back, think about what they're doing and consider some options and realize they're going to have to put 8, 10, 12 hours in. Why rush a call when they can take that extra time and maybe have a better resolution? I think that's a huge issue right now in law enforcement is being in too big of a hurry. I, the, it, it really upsets me a lot of times is that people want to rush officers, want to rush from one call to the next. And, and I tell them in training, I say, you guys realize you get paid by the hour, not by the call, right? Slow down and do it right. And uh, getting them to slow down. And I think that's part of being mature is recognizing that you need to slow down, take your time and do this one right. And then do the next one when you get to it, as opposed to saying, I've got 10 calls on my screen and I got to get to all of them right now. Blue Canary is here to help you tell your stories. And I couldn't do that without the help of some very generous sponsors. Let's take a quick break to hear from one. Help your team rise to increasing expectations with Agency 360's cloud-based software. Whether it is for the training of new employees or annual performance evaluations, Agency 360 can help trainers and supervisors streamline documentation, create consistency, and communicate clearly. Help retention by setting the tone and culture early with Agency 360. Learn more at agency360.com. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y 360.com. As I wrapped up the conversation with Lou, I asked him to share with our listeners what he thought the future held. What is next in law enforcement? Where does he see things going to help with internal investigations? Here's his take. There's a couple of things that are coming down the line. Some, a couple are controversial, but some of them are not. I think one of the big ones now that is time limits to finish an internal affairs investigation. It has been coming down the line for the last 20 years, and what you basically find is that in the union contracts, most of them either have a 120-day or 180-day requirement to finish your investigation. Some of them say not only to finish the investigation, but to then impose discipline if you're going to do it. Louisiana is a little different. They have 60 days, and you can ask for a 60-day extension. Now, for the most part, I don't have any problem with any of those. I've always said, you know, if I'm an officer who's being investigated, I want you to get it over with, you know, put it on the front burner. And if 
recently I read, I think it was Syracuse, New York, and then Baltimore City. Both of them have lost the ability to discipline some officers because they failed to meet. Both of them have a 180-day requirement, one by state law, I think one by union contract. If you're under some time crunch, you simply put that on the front burner or you add another investigator. Most of the cases we deal with are not that complex. What I do find, though, is that where we lose the time is not in the investigation. Where we lose the time is when the investigator finishes it and then starts sending it up through the chain of command and managers are allowing it to sit on their desk forever because they don't want to make that decision. That's where we're losing the time. The other thing that's coming down, and I think Colorado is the first that passed this law, saying that if there's a settlement or a jury verdict, the police officer involved is obligated to pay $25,000 or 5%, whichever is lower of that verdict. So very few cases end up being settled or a jury verdict. And more importantly, you know, an officer, just like a doctor, just like any kind of construction person you have coming into your home to do repair work, all of them have an insurance policy to cover them for workers' comp or injuries or some sort of lien. It's a minuscule amount of money. I think what it does is it puts some skin in the game for the officers. And, you know, it's rare for an officer to be sued. And yet in some agencies, you find some officers have been sued multiple times. And so you have to say, is it a coincidence? Is it luck of maybe what kind of calls they get? Or is it the way they do policing? I kind of think it's the latter, personally. While those things still may be coming down the line, what can an agency do now to address the issues and challenges ahead with misbehaving cops? How should reform begin within our departments? What has to change? We really need to educate people to say, one thing we ought to say now is that one reason you need to do it is because you could very well be prosecuted with these new progressive prosecutors out there. There will be more cases brought criminally against officers who failed to intervene. That's, so that's one reason. The other reason is to got to change the culture of law enforcement to say, who is it that you're protecting? Are you protecting the citizen who's being abused or is it your duty to protect the person who is abusing that citizen. That's a cultural change. That takes strength on the part of supervisors. My personal opinion is that many of our cases in the field could be nipped in the bud if you had a strong supervisor on the scene and put things back in order as quickly as possible. But for the most part, our supervisors are simply collecting the money and not doing the job. Why do you think that is? They fear the same thing. They fear the retaliation. Now, the other side of the coin is they also know that they got skeletons in their own closet. 
So if they suddenly get some stripes and now they're going to come out as being a crusader, the officers are going to look at them as being two-faced, say, wait a minute, I remember when you were a street cop. I remember what you did. Now, simply because you got some stripes on, you're telling us we shouldn't do that. A lot of them are reluctant to enter into that realm. I think the other thing is, and this is legitimate, supervisors say, yeah, but if I bring forward, let's say, paper on an officer who's engaged in misconduct, too often the department won't support me. And what they've done is just cut me off at the knees. So I'm not going to do that again. Or I'm aware of another sergeant who did that. And look what happened to Sergeant Schmidt. To put it simply, leadership has to change. A lot of the issues or problems that we're running into aren't necessarily problems that are happening at the officer level. They could have been resolved at that supervisory level. And that's where our failures seem to be. Our training, education, and culture changes have to begin at the supervisor level. Steve, I was in a large department. And at the time I was with LAPD, we had 18 geographic stations. In reality, we had 18 separate police departments. And then in each one of those geographic stations, we had three watches. We had three separate police departments, depending on who the lieutenant and the sergeants were. When we really get down to it, when you look at different agencies and different teams, the thrust and the culture of that team are generated by its supervisors. Look at the narcotic units or the gun task force units that have gone malignant. Sergeants were involved in that. They could have put a stop to it. So really, we've got to get down and we've got to treat supervisors, whether they're sergeants or whether they're lieutenants. They have to be on board with the cultural changes we want to bring in the police department. I still, by the way, like I say, I'm a year shy of 60 years and I still love law enforcement. And I still say that 99% of the cops out there are doing a good day's work. Some of them are doing an exceptional day's work. It's that small little segment that internal affairs is tasked with trying to rid us of. Now, the other side of the coin, I always say, if you've got a good professional internal affairs unit and you're a cop who needs to be protected, they are the ones that can protect you too from false claims. So I think internal affairs is essential to protecting good cops and getting rid of bad cops. And that's the story we have to start telling. Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? What story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com. 